0: Well, my wife and I are just back from a uh, trip on the Danube, starting in Budapest, or as they say in Hungary, Budapest, and um, ending in Nuremberg, Germany. Uh, You may or may not know, I bet a lot of you do, that Nuremberg was more or less the Nazi capital of Germany in those terribly fallen days. when we were in that city, we, w- did, we chose to go on the tour that was advertised as of special interest to Jews because they were to go and show uh, the guests, the hotspots for Jewish presence in that city. Well, I'll tell you what was most striking about that to me was that we didn't see very much. The Jewish presence in that city has been wiped pretty clean more than once, and most recently, of course, in the Nazi era. There was, in one market square, a concrete outline that followed... The foundation of what had been a synagogue and to a certain extent where they enclosed some remnants of pillars and so forth you could tell by the layout that yes it had been a synagogue now it was just an open concrete little sitting place in the middle of the square and uh, our guide brought us over to the beginning of one street that left that square And he pointed out to us uh, several, I would say probably less than 10, small bronze plaques. About double the size of a matchbox, about the size of a, (laughs) I shouldn't say this, about the cigarette uh, box. Um, um, I gave it up long ago, okay. Um, But... uh, On those plaques were inscribed the names, just the names of some people, Jewish people, who had lived on that street before the Holocaust. And to me, what was actually most upsetting was as we toured through the city, we saw... Well, we was fun after. Now look up here at this at this old house, please. It was just in one little courtyard, and uh, our eyes were directed to look where the second floor jutted out above the first floor just a little bit, maybe about two feet. Um, saved space in those days. And uh, what well you can see very very plainly on the bottom of what would be the eve in a second floor, but was just the beginning of the second floor in this house. What was used to go between two of the lintels, and therefore part of the bracing, was very plainly an old Jewish tombstone, with the Hebrew letters still very clear to see. So someone took a souvenir tombstone and added it to their house and the repairs. I'm uh, almost 72, and I think my generation is therefore going to be the last to hear some first-hand stories of World War II. I was born actually after the war was over. My father had come home. Well, most of them came home, minus a leg. Um, after fighting in the Pacific. He came a little bit early because of his wound. And I was born. And people my age remember stories that our mostly fathers told us or sometimes couldn't tell us because they were too upset to tell us. But, you know, I think the way we work as human beings, less and less do those memories that can be so effective for us, less and less do they get retold over and over again, so that we, in this present generation, are moved sufficiently to know if there is a like danger or anything close to it trying to erupt in our present. Those names and dates become somewhat fictional to us, like watching a television program or reading a book. Well, it's over, I'll go on with the rest of my day. For instance, how real, I ask you, do some of these numbers sound to you? I'm going to give you some numbers And in your soul of souls, do they sound like fake news or the real thing? In 1933, the Jewish population of Nuremberg was about 9,000, 9,000 Jews in the city. By 1939, 2,611 Jews remained. By 1941, toward the end of the war, 1800, 1,800 still remained. And by the war's end, 27 people of Jewish background remained alive after they suffered several expulsions and deportations. And there was one group out of three that were deported um, toward Marienburg. And of that group of some almost 300 people, only 65, uh, only 27 remained alive. All the others had been sent to their deaths in the concentration camps. How real are those numbers to us? From 9,000 to 65 in about a decade. And these were not voluntary movements to go to California for a better life. After the war, 65 Jews remained and returned to Nuremberg. By 2005, the Jewish population had grown to about 1500, which is good. And there was a new Jewish center and a new synagogue had been built because the previous two synagogues had been raised. Of those um, 1,500 people, which is still growing, largely because 80% of these people are coming from the former Soviet Union. Over 80% of the Jews in Nuremberg were either born or were first generation coming out of the Soviet Union, which to me is evidence that those Jews perceive that they have greater safety and hope for progress in Germany, in former Nazi Germany, rather than in Russia. And that's despite Germany's horrible acts in the first third of the 20th century. Now, it's Sunday. We want to be a little bit happy, right? And I I must say that Nuremberg wasn't all depressing. Not at all. It also provided me with a greater sense of hope than I had experienced at any other time on this uh, trip up the Danube. The guide left us in a market square, so we would catch a bus back to our ship, and my wife and I decided that we wanted to see inside one church that we had passed prickly in the tour, and uh, the only thing that our guide said about the church was, well, look here, see this little carved area? This is known as the Polish, no, excuse me, the, um, the Jewish pig. And was put up sometime in the Middle Ages, was carved sometime in the Middle Ages. It was obviously a statement that the Jews were not particularly welcome by the hometown Gentiles and were made fun of and ridiculed. Anti Semitism has a long, long history in many parts of Europe. However, we passed that up, and went in, and right by the door was this rather clear sign, not horrendously large, but certainly big enough to be noticed by anybody, and it said "Willkommen," which as you might imagine, is German for welcome. Walked inside, and I was a little bit surprised because we had been in a number of uh, churches uh, on this tour, and uh, had been in other buildings, especially from the Rococo age of art, which was almost overwhelming with its glistiness and uh, shiny gold surfaces on many of the statues and uh, figures in public buildings. There was very little in this church. It was dedicated to St. Sebald, S-E-B-A-L-D, who was a minor German saint. And I was impressed by, (laughs) this shows my prejudice, my Anglican reserve, the tastefulness and reserve of um, what was there. It was obviously a medieval church, but there was a great balance between the decorations, so to speak, and the beauty of the building itself. And as you walked toward the altar, which was a uh, standing altar, in the apse, the front apse, you passed a pulpit, which was a new pulpit, the other one had been destroyed in the war, and it was uh, shaped, oddly enough, like one of the stone altars from the Jewish temple. Very reminiscent of a stone altar with the four corners sticking up. I thought that was really neat, a subtle comment, um, to hold the holy book. And around, around and behind the altar, there were a series of photographs. They were black and white photos, quite stark. And they started with what was left of their church at the end of World War II. And that wasn't much. It was a pile of rubble. These 14 black and white placards, if you followed them, were sort of like doing the Stations of the Cross. Because they told a story. In this case, not the crucifixion of Jesus, at least not directly as in 2000 years ago, but the crucifixion of the church and the foretaste of the resurrection. Because you could see the determination of the local people in making sure that they did forgive and work to forget. And right next to one of these pictures, I was startled to see a cross that I recognized instantly. And the sign by it said that it was a gift to St. Siebel's from a church In Britain, Coventry Cathedral. Have uh, a number of you been there? Oh, well. (laughs) Um, Coventry is kind of a miracle in itself. If you go there, Coventry was one of the cities very, very badly bombed by the Germans. And what is left of the old cathedral has been left as a shell. If you broke an egg, you dumped out the insides and kept half of it with the sides sticking up like this. That's analogous to what is left of the cathedral. Basically, stone floor and stone walls. Obviously, the windows are smashed out, except that if you stand before what's left, the the altar, it's a stone altar. And if you're standing, facing it, off to your left is the new Canterbury Cathedral, which is a starkingly modern architectural architectural contribution that you see through the entire so-called west wall. In, In other words, our back here is all glass. And etched in it are angels like this. And um, when you look back at the altar, there was nothing on the altar except a cross. The cross was made of four huge nails of the old building that had been melted and welded together in the bombing. And so one comes from this direction, another comes from this direction, and so forth, and so forth welded together by the heat of a bomb to form a cross. And the people of Coventry have saved that and put it on the altar and etched underneath it two words, Father, forgive. And that same congregation, Coventry Cathedral, made a gift of sending to St. Siebold in Nuremberg, Germany, a duplicate of that same cross of nails. With the same message, of course. Father, forgive. So what does that have to do with today's gospel? You well might ask. Well, I'll try to tell you in a few short words. Um, We have a human need not only to comprehend the depths to which we and our fellow humans can sink, but also to hold on to some form of hope despite all the mess. Some form of hope for tomorrow, that things will be better, that things can recover, at least to a certain degree, that there will be reason to go on, even though we might not be terribly changed by all the tragedy. And that puts us in pretty much the same position as Jesus' contemporaries that he spoke to, Jesus' disciples that he called, and the crowds around Jesus where he told stories like the one in today's gospel. Because they, too, Virtually all of them, including Jesus, were waiting for the arrival of the day of the Lord when God would probably send his Messiah who would fix it all and restore it and bring it back to new life. In other words, it's beyond us, God. Take care of it, please. Send your holy Messiah. So, when Jesus first appeared after his baptism, appeared publicly, and began to preach around the area, repent, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand, he received a pretty enthusiastic response from some of the members of that society. And he continued telling stories about what the approach of the kingdom of God meant, including this one. Now, the catch is that in the very early church, first-generation church, followers of Jesus, many, perhaps the majority, assumed that whatever restoration God was sending was going to happen in their lifetime because things can't get worse than this. This must be the end of the world, especially after 70 A.D. when the Romans utterly defeated the Jews and expelled them from Palestine. What could be worse? But that spectacular end of all bad things and new beginning of new good things did not happen with any bit of obvious notice by people and they had to do something with their presupposition that it was all going to happen in their lifetime generally speaking the church in a generation or three came to accept the idea that Christ's crucifixion and resurrection was authentically the first fruits of the coming of the kingdom but the job was not yet over. And some radically assumed that it was up to them to force the issue. Some assumed it was their job just to let God do it all. I think uh, what Jesus, the parable that Jesus told, which is actually more of an allegory, Uh, Nevertheless, I think it has some real relevance for us, too, in the same position. Because in our form of civilization in this day and age, one of our characteristics is the desire for immediate satisfaction. We've been trained by the boob tube, you know, if the plot hasn't been solved in a half hour, Why bother looking next time? Has to be done, has to be done, has to be done, has to be done, so I can recognize it, otherwise it isn't true. Which would leave a very wide gap in that area that most people ascribe to hope. And in that regard, I think it is important for us to remember two parts of what Jesus did, his initial call to his generation. First word was repent. And the second part was because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which, any way you look at it, means either near physically or near in time. But still with an almost as part of it. And with the word repent, he no doubt was using what the Jews understood as repentance, and the Hebrew word repentance or repent actually means in its literal form, turn around. So if you're all involved in your sins, turn around, turn away from that and turn to God. That's what repent really meant. Simple concept especially if we're walking. And being at hand was understood in terms of both time and nearness, that they're almost here, the kingdom is almost here, and not quite. Maybe minutes or inches away, but not quite, still not quite. And we don't know. We don't know when it will all fully arrive. So, I ask you to keep in mind also the agricultural context of Jesus' listeners and what he was saying to them in his little story about wheat and weeds. Now, scholars, of whom I am not one, uh, tell us that wheat and darnel, or a very close allied form of weedy wheat, have uh, different appearances. Not initially, but later on in their life cycles. The wheat tends to grow fast and straight, and that's great. And it comes into its fullness and grows some grains that are going to be harvestable at the end. But the weight of the head tends to make them bend, and lean. The weeds, however, the darnel, stay straight up the whole time because they know they're right. Here I am. Here I am. I'm right. You got your heads bowed for you. Keep in mind, please, That illustration that Jesus gave them. As I read to you some words of a hymn, a lot of you know it, I'm sure. It goes by two names. It goes by the Shaker hymn, and it also goes by the name of Simple Gifts. If you ever want to look it up, it is uh, what is it? something. Yeah, 554 in the hymnal. It's really in our hymnal, but it goes like this: It is the gift to be simple." Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, it will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we shan't be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight. And by turning, turning, we come round right. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.